0: So we're back in First Timothy, but also we're continuing in these six weeks where we're focusing in on the discipleship project. So we're still asking during these six weeks, watch the podcast, the, the Christian Contrast podcast where we talk about discipleship. Continue to pray through how God is going to lead you in this. Continue to think of the, the October 13th event where we're going to gather together and train on this. Continue to ask the question how God is going to ask you to be involved. And later on in the message, I'm going to talk about how this ties in to what we're doing with the Discipleship Project. But we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 4, and we're going to go through verses 1 through 5. So to start our time, I'm going to read the passage for us, and if you don't have a Bible, you can look up on the screen and read along there as I read here. 1 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 1. The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. This is God's word. And for me, thinking about what Paul talks about in this passage, to me, one of the saddest things is hearing stories about people who walk away from the faith. People that, uh, we, we, at this church, we don't believe that people lose their salvation, that, that they're truly saved by Jesus and then that they somehow lose that. But we do believe that there's a lot of people who confess faith in Jesus and then later on renounce faith in Jesus. And that often what's, what's going on there is it's somebody that has had some access to the gospel, some experience of God's work, but has never truly given their heart to Jesus and then later on walks away. And just within the last couple of months, there were some very public stories of people abandoning the faith, kind of back to back. One of them was got by a guy named Joshua Harris, who was a pastor for a bunch of years and, uh, and also a Christian author, had a, had a couple of really popular books, and then announced that he and his wife were getting a divorce and very quickly, on top of that, announced that he was not just walking away from his marriage, but walking away from his faith. One of the things that he said was, By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. And you think of the impact of that, not just on all of us hearing it, but on the people who sat under his teaching and his pastoral leadership, who read his books and his family and friends. There's a lot of impact when somebody walks away from the faith. And just within a couple weeks of that, about a couple weeks later, the Hillsong worship leader named Marty Sampson announced something very similar in a long social media post that began with him saying, I'm genuinely losing my faith and it doesn't bother me. He went on to talk about his battles with doubt, which, by the way, is not a strange thing to battle with doubt. We all do. We all have doubts, we all have struggles, we all have questions. But sadly, at least at the time, he seemed to be taking it to the level that he needed to abandon the faith over these things, ending his post by saying, All I know is what's true to me right now, and Christianity just seems like another religion at this point. Now, I know since that post, there was a little bit of backtracking, and so God willing, Marty right now is working with mentors and with people who are helping him wrestle through with his doubts. But the impact was still out there. We had back-to-back stories of well-known Christian leaders who walked away from the faith. But we don't even have to get to the popular leaders to think about how this impacts us because there's not a person in this room that hasn't had the experience of somebody that you love who once professed faith in Jesus and then later on renounced faith in Jesus. And it's not only painful when we think about them. If you're like me at all, you begin to think, why is it that I'm not gonna end up in that same place? I mean, we're we're talking about people that wrote the songs that we sing on Sunday. We're talking about somebody that wrote books that were bestsellers within the Christian community. Why is it that I'm gonna be any different? What is it that's going on with people that abandon the faith? And how can we protect ourselves against that? And the bottom line is that when it comes to the whole concept of people walking away, there's a lot of reasons why people walk away. Sometimes the reason has more to do with an intellectual doubt. Sometimes it has to do more with sort of an emotional reaction or or with a relationship that leads somebody astray. But there's a common thread, and the common thread with anybody who abandons the faith is this. Those who abandon the faith are always, it always stems from deception, There always is a lie at the center of what's going on that lead people to abandon the faith. And so in a way, the passage we're going to go through begins pretty bleak. It begins with Paul talking about liars. It moves on from him talking about liars to him talking about lies. But then it culminates in him talking about the beautiful truth that we hold to and that steadies us in the midst of all the deception that we face. And let me just give you a a quick preview of this. One of the surprising things that we're going to encounter is the house rule that Paul brings out for this. As we go through 1 Timothy, we're talking about 1 Timothy as sort of the house rules for the family of God. This is how we do life. And the house rule that Paul is gonna talk about that combats falling away has a lot to do with how we respond to God's gifts. And we'll get to that But first, we have to move through the beginning of this. And Paul begins in verses one and two by giving us a general warning that we're gonna face liars. He says in verse one, the Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith. And by the way, those later times are not just far in the future. Paul is talking to Timothy about right then in the first century. Since Jesus rose from the dead, we are now in the later times. We're anticipating Jesus' return. We're in a new age. So he says, in those later times, there's going to be people that abandon the faith. There's going to be people that once professed Jesus that now renounce Jesus. And he says, and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Paul gives a reminder that our ultimate battle is not against flesh and blood, There's a satanic influence to the deception. We'll come back to that in a minute. Just look at the rest, because in verse two, he says, all right, there's a satanic deception at the center of this, but there's human teachers that are the ones that are visible that we see. So he says in verse two, such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. And that whole concept of the the conscience being seared with the hot iron, it's not, scholars kind of debate on what exactly Paul means here because it could be one of two things. What he could be saying is that the conscience, the, the, the thing that God has given us to be able to tell between right and wrong, the conscience has been seared with a hot iron, maybe it means that it's talking sort of about a farmer who would brand a cow, saying this cow belongs to me and that now the conscience of these false teachers belongs to the enemy. But I think actually more likely what Paul is saying when he talks about being branded with a hot iron, is talking about not just the idea of being branded, but the idea of a wound being cauterized. And when that happens, the feeling is gone. I think at the core, what he's saying is, with these false teachers, they no longer are sensitive to, to right and wrong. And by the way, he's not saying that these are people who are genuinely deceived. He's saying these are people who know what they're doing, but they're more interested in money and more interested in fame than in telling the truth. And before going back to to verse one, let me just also say this for all of us. There's a difference between somebody who's a false teacher and somebody who's genuinely mistaken. And there are things in the Bible that are tough. There are things in the Bible that are tough yeah, there are things that are just hard to understand. Right now our men's Bible study is going through the book of Revelation. There's some things in Revelation that are kind of tough. Yeah. That, that's a difficult book and we're gonna have like eight different men playing a part in teaching that. We don't all agree on every single part of Revelation. In fact, you saw Jakari in that, that video earlier. Jakari and I joke about this because he's gonna be one of the teachers, I'm one of the teachers also. Jakari and I don't, don't agree about the rapture. He thinks we're going to be raptured. I think we're not. I know right now you guys are like, I'm with Jakari. I want to get out of here. (laughs) All right. Here's the bottom line. Both of us can't be right. But one of us is wrong about this thing. That doesn't mean either one of us has had our conscience seared as with a hot iron. That just means we're genuinely trying to understand God's word. And some of these things are really tough. But there are people who are not even sensitive to the deception that they're bringing because they're so obsessed with what they gain by leading people astray. But even beyond that, even beyond the warning that Paul wants to give that there are deceiving teachers out there, he wants to draw us back to verse one to say, what's the real source of these teachings? No false teacher is that original, it turns out. They're getting their ideas from the father of lies, deceiving spirits, and things taught by demons. Jesus said that Satan is the father of lies, that he's been lying from the beginning. You can go back to the beginning in Genesis 3 and see the lie that brought sin into the world in the first place. This is Satan's main tactic. By the way, Satan gets more traction with deception than he does with outright oppression. Because if he brings trials into your lives, God is really good at using those trials to shape you into being who he means for you to be. Satan gets more casualties. From deception, And if nothing else, I think one of the things that he wants to do, that Paul wants to do just by bringing this up, is just to say, men and women, don't go out there day to day thinking that the main battle in life is just you trying to be the best version of yourself. Or the main battle in life is just you trying to bounce back through the different difficulties that you face in the world. The main battle in life is a spiritual battle and you have a very real enemy. Right now, I, I'm getting to coach my, um, my son, David, his, his soccer team, a bunch of six and seven-year-olds. And uh, we, we, had a, we had a game yesterday, and it was just like all the others. We always start the game with the same warm-up. And the warm-up is that me and the other coach, we kick, the, the, the kids all line up, we kick them the ball, and we say, one touch and then Shoot. So just you're supposed to you know, stop the ball or just touch the ball once and then kick it in the net. That's the whole idea of the trial. It's, it's urgency. Touch the ball once and then shoot. But what the kids like to do is get all set up. So the ball comes to them. It's not touch the ball once. It's kind of touch the ball once, twice, get it to the spot that you like, back up, get a little bit of space, check the wind, look around you, make sure mom and dad are photographing it, and then kick the ball in. Now, that works for warm-ups. You know what's going to happen in the game? You're going to have an opponent, and that opponent is never going to let you have all that time. You'll be a sitting duck if you forget that in the game you have an opponent. And brothers and sisters, we are in deep trouble if we go through life forgetting that we have an enemy. We have a very real enemy who wants to deceive us. We're going to talk about a specific lie in verse three, but before that, I think it's worth just saying, let's talk for a minute about some of the key lies that the enemy puts out there for us. One of the key lies that a lot of us experience is that if you are going through difficulty, that means God has abandoned you. And there's a lot of you in here that are going through difficulty and you're tempted by that lie. If I'm going through this, that must mean that God doesn't care. Man, that's not the truth that we get in God's word. The profound truth that we get in God's word is that when we are going through difficulty, that's often when God is most actively at work in our lives. That's because God cares about us enough to shape us and discipline us and train us into being the men and women that he's called us to be. Trials don't signal the absence of God working in your life. They signal God shaping you actively as a good father will. There's another lie that Satan loves to feed us and he loves to feed us the lie that because of what you did 10, 20 years ago or because of what you did yesterday, God could never love you. God could never forgive you. And there's some of you in here this morning that you're probably carrying around guilt and shame from stuff in your distant past or stuff in your recent past. And if there's nothing else that you take from the sermon today, I'm, I'm serious about this. I want you to remember the words of Romans 5. That when we were helpless, godless sinners, Jesus died for us. God loves you profoundly. And not because he's tricked into thinking that you're very useful, very godly, and not a sinner. He sees you for exactly who you are and he loves you desperately. Don't believe the lie of the enemy. Don't believe the lie of the enemy that if you're following Jesus on the narrow road, you're missing out on real life. You are not missing out on real life. You're walking away from things that are passing away and you're moving into things that are eternal. The enemy is a liar from the beginning and he fills. The world with lies. And Paul's going to zero in on a specific lie that was going on at Ephesus. And it's not necessarily the lie we would expect. So, here, after all that buildup in verse 3, he says, Here's what these false teachers are doing they forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods. Some of us might be thinking, That's the lie? <laughs> That's what they're coming with? They're coming with some form of of inordinate self-denial, some form of the way you get in good with God, the way you get in good spiritually is by denying yourself pleasure. And that seems to be what these two have in common. It seems to be some form of physicality is bad, physical pleasure is bad. So if you want to be spiritual, you stay away from it. So you stay away from marriage because marriage involves sex and sex involves physical pleasure, so you stay away from that because that somehow is evil. And then you stay away from certain foods, not because you have strict dietary restrictions, but because the physical pleasure of food is somehow an affront to God. So the way that you get spiritual is from a warped sense of self-denial. Now just as a by the way on this, she might be saying, well self-denial is a Christian idea. It is, you're right. In fact, in the next passage that we're going to go through next week, Paul is going to say to Timothy and to all of us, discipline yourselves for the sake of godliness. He's going to say there's a time in the Christian life where we say no to something pleasurable because there's something else at stake. But here, the denial is not a means to an end. Here, the denial is just the end. Deny yourself physical pleasure so that you can be more spiritual. Now, again, I'll just say some of you are thinking right now, that's not the most prevalent lie in our culture today. That might have been the most prevalent lie then. That doesn't seem like the most prevalent lie today. The most prevalent lie today seems to be the opposite of that. The most prevalent lie today seems to be not deny yourself physical pleasure, but indulge in every whim that you have towards physical pleasure because that's where real life is found. Some of you might be thinking, I think we need to focus on that lie instead of this lie. But let me just say to you, that lie and this lie are two sides of the same coin. And here's why they're two sides of the same coin. Both of them focus on something outward while being utterly devoid of the concept of a relationship. The whole concept of legalism, or whatever we want to call the the heresy, the false teaching that's going on here in Ephesus, it has to do with a kind of religion, a form of spirituality that's totally devoid of relationship with God. It's the idea of ritual without thinking of that as a means to an end to walk with the God who created you. You know what's at the center of the gospel of the good news of Jesus? It's that you can be reconciled to God. The good news of the gospel of Jesus is not we finally got the rules that God wants us to follow. The good news of the gospel of Jesus is we finally have a path to be reconciled to God. We we can be his sons and daughters. We can be part of the family. We can experience the Holy Spirit being present in our lives. We can have hope for eternity. We can have forgiveness of sins. We can have God's guidance in our lives in a daily way. We can read God's word and we can pray knowing that we're communing with God the Father, not simply with a distant judge. That's at the center of the gospel. And the heresy, the lie that Paul's combating here is utterly devoid of the concept of relationship. And by the way, so is the whole concept of indulge every wind that you have. That's totally devoid of relationship. That's saying chase down pleasure wherever you can find it because that's your best bet for real life. And the gospel tells us you can relax on all of that because real life is found in communing with God. And anything that you're gonna give up to get that is a means to an end, not an end in and of itself. So for example, some of you are gonna make different decisions about what you do with gifts that God has given you. Some of you are gonna make decisions not to drink any alcohol. And it's gonna be a good decision because you have special temptations in that, you have difficulties in your past, or you just kind of want to avoid all the entanglements of that. And that could end up being a good decision. But don't fool yourself for a moment into thinking real spirituality is found through abstaining from alcohol. Real spiritual life is found in communing with God. And if alcohol is in the way of that, get it out of the way. Not as an end, but as a means to an end. The lie here is spirituality without relationship. The truth that Paul is gonna start getting to at the end of verse three has to do with how we get a transformed view of God's gifts through the gospel, let me put up all of verse three now. All right, so going back to the beginning of verse three, he says, all right, they forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. And so here's the house rule for the first part of chapter four. Here's how we live life as the family of God. We live life by enjoying God's gifts, saying how tragic if you looked at these good gifts that God has given as the ultimate thing that you must have to have any life, but also how sad to look at these good gifts that God has given as something to be utterly avoided in order to be spiritual. So there's a different path that the gospel leads us on. And that different path is that God and relationship with him is the center. We are filled up with the life of God as we draw near to him in relationship. And then beyond that, we look at God's good gifts and we say, if we have them, that's great, we'll enjoy them. If we don't have them, that's okay, they were just gifts. We have a completely different attitude towards them. In fact, look at what Paul says getting into verses four and five because it seems to get even more audacious. For everything God created is good. Everything? Everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Why? Because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Here's the big picture of what Paul is saying here. He's saying that as Christians, our view of the physical world, our view of all of these things that we experience and that sometimes we feel tempted by and sometimes we feel drawn by, our overall view of them is that these are all good and fine things that if used in the right way are good gifts from God, but that we also recognize can be twisted and misused and abused if God is not the center of our lives. In fact, some of you are familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes, which I think is really helpful for us on this whole question. And a lot of the book of Ecclesiastes is about the author talking about, all right, I tried to find life through building things and having great accomplishments, and that was empty in the end. And I tried to find life through physical pleasure and by multiplying all that, and that was empty in the end. And I tried to find life through money and through possessions, but that was empty in the end. And I tried to find life through intellectual significance, but that was empty in the end. And you know why all those things were empty in the end? Because they were treated as the main thing in life. And when the author of Ecclesiastes starts to bring God to the, into the equation, when he says, You know what life is like if we fear God? If he's at the center? if he's treated as the source instead of all these other things treated as the source, the way the author of Ecclesiastes goes is he doesn't say, and because of that, I avoid all pleasure. Because of that, no marriage. Because of that, no eating. Because of that, no drinking. Because of that, no possessions. He doesn't say that at all. He says, when God is at the center, you know what you can do? You can enjoy a good meal, a good drink, marriage, and hard work. You can enjoy those things because they no longer have the pressure of trying to fill you up, which they will fail to do every time. He says, what a good thing. When God's at the center of it, suddenly the pressure's taken off all of these things. Suddenly you can do what Paul talks about in this passage. You can just thank God for it. You can come before a meal and say, this is so great. We get to pray and thank God that he's provided this stuff that we're about to eat. What a great experience. It means that when it comes to marriage, you get to look at marriage and say, what a great gift from God. We get to experience this. And you know, some of us will, and some of us won't. It's not at the center, and so it's not something that we have to have, but if we have it, we're just going to thank God for it. And here's a little aside, by the way. This is true of Christians and non-Christians. There is a great temptation to make romantic love and marriage a source of life. And when we do that, we absolutely suffocate our spouse and we doom our marriage to disappointment because no spouse and no marriage can live up to the idea that we are going to receive life through that relationship. Marriage is challenging and it's also a good gift. And you know what, if God is your source, you know what you get to do with marriage? You get to take the pressure off. You get to look at your spouse and say, all right, you're not God, you're not gonna fulfill my every desire, you're not gonna be the source of my ultimate happiness, but it's pretty good living with you. (laughs) This is kind of nice we get to partner together, you help me and I help you and we partner together and we get to experience some really good things in life. You know, this is a good gift from God. In the same way, just think of the pressure if you are like, all right, this next meal that I'm gonna have, we're gonna go out to a restaurant and this next meal, man, it better be so good that it just fills me up for a year. It better be so good that it is the ultimate happiness that I've ever experienced. I promise you, even if you're at Fleming's, that meal is not going to do that but if you're filled up by the god of the universe you can go into that meal and say wow what a great meal what a great gift from god i had a nice steak had a glass of wine what a good thing thank god for his gifts the gospel transforms how we interact with god's gifts because we don't treat them as the source and we also don't treat them as the enemy now, let me just throw out some, some pastoral counsel on this because some of you might still be going back and saying, all right, Paul said everything is good and nothing is to be rejected, but we know there's some fine print here. We know there's still stuff you're not supposed to do. We still, all right, sex is a good gift, but only within marriage, otherwise it's being abused. You know, alcohol is a good gift, but only if used rightly, it can easily be abused. Food can be abused. All, all of these things can be abused. So, so there's danger around all of these things and all of that is true. And you might be looking at it and say, well, how do I sort through? How do I sort through when I'm experiencing and thanking God for a good gift and not getting trapped or entangled with that gift? And I'll give you two pieces of advice for how you do it. The first is this. We're in the midst of talking about this whole discipleship project idea. The fact that we are partnering with one another as we live as disciples of Jesus one of the wisest things that you can do if you're at a point and you're saying, you know what, he just said alcohol is a good gift, but I'm kind of thinking maybe I need to stop. I I seem to find myself entangled. It seems like a danger area. I'm kind of thinking I need to stop, but I'm not sure I don't want to deny myself a good gift from God if if, if I'm supposed to enjoy it, But, but I'm kind of thinking maybe I shouldn't be. You know what would be really wise for you to do? To talk with another believer indwelt by the Holy Spirit and say, what do you think about this? Here's what's going on in my life right now. Here's the battle that I'm facing. Man, the more people that you bring into this, this this is one of the reasons why we want the Discipleship Project to sweep throughout our church family to say, we are not trying to figure this out on our own. We've got brothers and sisters partnering with us as we look to make those hard decisions and say, you know what, maybe I just need to take a month off from this. Maybe I just need to cancel my Netflix subscription. Maybe I need to get off social media. Not because these things are bad, but because if I really want closeness with God, I wanna get anything in the way out of the way. And at the same time, I don't wanna deny a good gift of God simply because I think simply by denying it, I'm gonna somehow be more spiritual. Number one is bring other people into it. And number two is this. It's something right here in the passage. He says twice, once in verse three and once in verse four, God's gifts are meant to be enjoyed with thanksgiving. This is not a cure-all, but here's some advice. If you can thank God for what you're doing and do that in good conscience, that's a good sign that you're just enjoying God's good gift. If you try to thank God for something that you just did and you're having a hard time thanking God for it, it's a sign that maybe you should rethink it. You're saying, God, I went out with a friend and we each had a beer and we had a great talk and really enjoyed it. God, thank you for that time. Versus saying, God, we went out and drank more than one beer. Not necessarily proud of all the things that I said during that time. I kind of looked like an idiot by the end of the night. God, I'm not quite sure I can thank you for the evening I just had that's a warning sign that you need to step back and reevaluate. It's not a cure-all, but it's a signal. If you can get to the end of watching something on Netflix and say, oh God, that was funny, that was exciting, I really enjoyed that, thanks for this good gift that I got to enjoy it. Versus you get to the end of it and you say, oh, I don't want to thank God for that, I hope God didn't know that I was watching that. That's a signal of God's guidance in your life. If you can enjoy the good gifts with thanksgiving, that's a signal that you are simply celebrating God's goodness in practical, everyday ways to you. We enjoy God's gifts because they're not the source and because they're not the enemy. And frankly, when we talk about the danger of walking away, let me just say some people walk away from the faith because they treat God's gifts as the enemy, And they just can't keep that up. They've denied themselves every possible thing and eventually they'd run out of steam and say, I just gotta go do some stuff. And some people walk away from the faith because they've been so busy treating God's gifts as sorcerers and using the idea of license to do that that they just have no use of God anymore. We enjoy God's gifts because they're not the source and because they're not the enemy. And and let me just say something as I get ready to to pray for us today. Um, We're we're not gonna have what we sometimes do with our response time where we're gonna have the band come back out. But by the end of the service, we are gonna have pastors and elders on either side of the stage, prayer team members, ready to receive anybody that wants to come forward for prayer, for counsel. And it may be because there may be some of you here that are thinking, all right, right now, I think there's a gift of God that I've been abusing and I need to figure that out. And some of you might be thinking, all right, I think there's a gift of God that that I've been feeling extra guilt over when, when I could just be enjoying this and I need to figure that out. Or there may just be some other prayer need that you have. We're gonna have people ready to receive you after the service because we wanna celebrate God's goodness and we also wanna walk wisely so that we experience the goodness of God drawing near to him. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, thank you that you are such a good God. You not only have given us the ultimate gift in Jesus of being welcomed into your family and having our sins forgiven and having the hope of heaven, you've given us so many other gifts with relationships with one another, with the food that we eat, with the possessions that we have, with the fun times that we get to have. Thank you for those good gifts. Please protect us from ever treating those as the source of life. And please protect us from treating those like the enemy. Lead us to be wise when we need to walk away from a gift that we've begun to abuse. And lead us with joy as we welcome the good gifts that you've given us and thank you for them. Lead us to shine the light of Jesus as we walk in this way and enjoy your good gifts. In the name of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, amen.